Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Uh, no Gavin today. Uh, he is fumigating or something. That's his story anyway. Uh, but we've got three other fine folk to round out the lineup. Uh, Edward White of the News Lens International Edition. Ed, good to have you. Good evening, Keith. Also got Ross Feingold, frequent ICRT contributor. Hello, Ross. Good evening. And Skyping it in from the UK, we have Bob Cow, who is a California lawyer and a researcher at Queen Mary University of London. Bob, good to have you. Good evening, Keith. On the show today, a whole bunch of stuff going on in Hong Kong. The city has a new chief executive. Former Chief Secretary for Administration Carrie Lam was selected for the post. Following uh, closely on the heels of the selection, though, we also got the news that a number of the leading members of the 2014 pro-democracy umbrella movement uh, have been informed that they will soon face charges for their role in the protest. So, big week for Hong Kong, but what might these developments mean for Taiwan? We'll discuss that. Then we've got an update on former President Ma Ying-jeou's legal challenges. Uh, earlier this week, he beat the rap on a case brought by Democratic Progressive Party caucus whip Ker Jianming. Uh, so we're going to be giving a quick update there as well. Then in the second half, we have two lawyers on our panel today. Of course, Bob. Uh, also Ross, though. Ross is kind of a stealth lawyer. Uh, he doesn't talk about it too much. But today we are outing him. And we're going to make full use of their legal talents. Uh, first, we're going to get some insights into the Council of Grand Justices' review of a legal challenge related to same-sex marriage. Then judicial reform is on the docket as a national conference on judicial reform continues We've got people here who uh, actually know what's going on. So, in just a little bit, they're going to tell us. But first, let's start with the news that's uh, really dominated the headlines here this week in Taiwan. The detention of Taiwanese human rights and democracy advocate Li Mingzhe, uh, which many believe signals a new effort by Chinese authorities to crack down on dissent. News about this detention has kind of trickled out over the past week or so. According to reports, Lee went missing after entering China through Macau on March 19th. His wife went public about a week ago. Uh, at the time, she said that Lee had gone to China to share Taiwan's experience of democratization. Uh, at first, pretty interestingly, it actually took quite a while for Chinese authorities to confirm that they had indeed detained Lee. Uh, the, and when they did come forward, the reason that they gave for the detention is that he uh, has been allegedly involved in activities that threaten China's national security. So, uh, so far, playing it pretty close to the vest, the Chinese authorities. Now the Mainland Affairs Council is calling on Beijing to allow Li's family and lawyer to visit him. But some critics here in Taiwan say the government has not been pressing the case hard enough. So uh, it's pretty interesting uh, that they didn't report the case to Taiwan authorities uh, right off the bat. Uh, Ross, what do you make of that? Any interaction between the two governments uh, with regard to individuals, individuals who have run into trouble uh, on either side, uh, other issues, has to be put in the context of the current environment of, of cross-strait relations. So obviously the two governments are rarely talking to each other. Uh, so the likelihood of a, a speedy message from the Chinese side when they've detained a national from Taiwan on any issue, especially one that involves accusations with regard to involvement with human rights organizations, democracy development organizations, etc., uh, as opposed to a, a more common crime. Um, fraud, etc. Uh, it's certainly going to be slow in coming, and that shouldn't surprise us. So as to this uh, perception that many people have that this perhaps signals a new tone in terms of the way that Beijing is going to handle foreign dissidents coming into the country, um, uh, other folks have pointed out that you know this isn't the first time that uh, a Taiwanese national has been detained in uh, China. Uh, Edward, do you see anything new here? Yeah, I think in the context of what's happened this week, where you've had also an Australian academic um, who was who was travelling into China, I think on a Chinese passport, uh, Fong Chongyi, and he has been not allowed to return to Australia as well. So, outside of the cross-strait tension, you've also got signs that China is becoming a little bit more brash in terms of how it's handling um, foreigners that it 
perhaps doesn't like what they've been saying or doing or writing? Well, the, the crackdown by the Chinese government on foreign individuals and NGOs, again, involved in this space, democracy development, human rights, uh, training for women's rights organizations, environmental protection organizations. This is something that has stepped up dramatically under President Xi's tenure. Of course, uh, there was uh, the, the law, the that's law related right. to NGOs that's right. and right. what and they that, can and can't do in China. That, right, and that codified what the Chinese government had been doing. What, what somewhat distinguishes this situation uh, involving the, the gentleman from Taiwan as opposed to the gentleman from Australia is we tend not to see high visibility from organizations based here in Taiwan doing this kind of work in China, whereas we frequently see visibility from American organizations and European organizations, Australian organizations, some of which receive support from their governments, some of which are completely independent of their governments, but whether they're uh, financially supported in part by their governments or strictly from private donations, uh, the Chinese government perceives all of them as agents, evil agents of foreign governments doing nefarious things like teaching democracy and rule of law concepts to people. Can't have that. Can't have that. Absolutely not. Uh, But again, what distinguishes this situation is, is that it involves someone from Taiwan. I think what remains to be seen here, though, is was he on an individual information gathering study tour? Uh, Was he there as part of a more formal program organized by a Taiwan NGO? Because again, when when foreign organizations or individuals uh, come to the attention of the Chinese authorities and get detained, arrested for these kinds of activities, very often actually it's part of a a fairly well-structured um, so sometimes transparent program that these foreign NGOs are running, especially if the NGOs are receiving government funding from their host governments because they'd be subject to procurement and, and key performance indicators and reporting as part of the grants that they receive. And so it does remain to be seen whether he was there as part of a very formal program initiated by a Taiwanese NGO. Mm. The other thing that's worth adding on this case in particular is that it wasn't just him Mr. Lee going to China in this one instance, he's been going back and forth uh, annually, we understand now. Mm -hmm. He's also been uh, communicating with like-minded individuals perhaps in China via WeChat Mm -hmm. um, for a long time, sort of having weekly discussions on democracy, human rights and transitional transitional justice issues. Mm -hmm. And from that, um, his WeChat account was shut down last year. So he's obviously been on the radar of Chinese mm-hmm. uh, authorities for some time. And in terms of them using these NGO laws or the national security laws, those laws are pretty opaque. They give the Chinese authorities a pretty wide net. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think, and that's why the Australian example is probably relevant, is that they're now you're now getting a bit of an idea around how the Chinese authorities are using some of these new laws that, as Ross said, they've codified in recent times. Mm. Right. And just a couple of other biographical facts about Mr. Lee. He formerly uh, worked with the DPP. I think he uh, just as a staffer, a general staffer for the DPP. Uh, currently now, though, he works at, at a community college. Now, Edward, there is also... Some criticism that the government is facing that they have not done enough to kind of pressure China into giving more information or making some kind of formal report and saying exactly what this guy has been charged with. Do you think that the relatively low-key approach that uh, the Mainland Affairs Council has taken maybe reflects uh, President Tsai Ing-wen's priorities in terms of how she wants to deal with cross-strait ties? I, I would say that would be drawing a long bow. I think this just basically reflects the very narrow space that Taiwan operates in at the moment. It just doesn't really have much leverage. Um, We know that some of the avenues that it's previously had in the past to work with China and to talk to Chinese officials, whether they're official channels or um, behind closed doors and things that you might not hear about publicly, a lot of those doors are now closed. And so I, I don't think it's a fair criticism to say that the Taiwanese authorities haven't been trying. The criticism should be that the situation that they're in just gives them very little access. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we are going to have to see how this detention unfolds as we get more information about it. Uh, Moving on and moving over to Hong Kong, we've got an election and some delayed prosecution to look at there. Uh, Let's start with that election. Uh, And we use that term election here uh, somewhat loosely. Uh, what we're really talking about is the selection, the selection of uh, Carrie Lam to be the city's new top official. 
That selection was made by a 1,194-member election committee, and uh, crucially, though, not by the city at large. She replaces C.Y. Leung to become the city's fourth leader since the end of British rule in 1997 and its first female leader. But critics see Lam as just a proxy for Beijing rule, and uh, critically, she has no plans to revamp the city's electoral system. Of course, the 2014 protests were sparked by Beijing's decision to restrict popular voting for the city's elected officials. So, a bit of a disappointing turn of events from the perspective of the city's pro-democracy crowd. But that crowd got some more jarring news later in the week when news surfaced that many of the organizers behind the 2014 Umbrella Movement were informed that they are going to face charges related to their participation in that movement. The timing of the charges uh, so close to the new appointment has many wondering whether or not this may signal a new direction in the relationship between Hong Kong and Beijing. All right, so that's what's happening in Hong Kong. Let's bring things back to Taiwan Uh, Earlier this week, some DPP legislators were quick to condemn the election itself, saying the promise of one country, two systems is dead. Ross, is that a fair assessment? Well, in Taiwan, whether it's the KMT going back uh, to the time when China first proposed the one country, two systems uh, idea, uh, subsequently uh, the DPP came into power, uh, back to the KMT, then now back to the DPP again. But both sides of the political uh, debate in Taiwan have rejected the one country, two systems as an option for Taiwan. Uh, so there, there is almost no support in Taiwan for this kind of system to be the basis by which Taiwan and China would uh, change the nature of their relationship. So whether it's dead or not for Hong Kong is is kind of irrelevant for people here in Taiwan. But, but again, somewhat similar to our earlier conversation about the former DPP party official uh, who's been detained in China, if China and Hong Kong are separate parts of a separate country, I think it's a valid question to ask. How much time should government or legislators here in Taiwan be speaking, analyzing, or even critiquing events in Hong Kong as opposed to saying, you know what? Nothing to do with us. Not our country. Uh, Right. Of course, a different country. But uh, many here in Taiwan see the experience in Hong Kong since 1997 as, you know, a potential test case for how, you know, given the chance, China might treat Taiwan under similar circumstances. So, uh, Edward, do you see any relevance there? Yeah, I guess Hong Kong's always looked at as an example of um, what what could happen to Taiwan if there was ever any sort of closer relations between Taiwan and Beijing. I, I guess the the direction that you're seeing in Taiwan and in Hong Kong rather is very interesting at the moment that again Beijing's become a lot less subtle in its uh, interactions or its involvement in, in Hong Kong and things that were promised back in the, before the 1997 handover have slowly some of those promises seem to not be coming to fruition and so the erosion of democracy, which is you know what the umbrella protests or the occupation protests in 2014 were about, is is really a, a live issue for Hong Kong. And so I think it's fair enough for people in Taiwan to point at that and say, hey, this is what we're going to try to avoid here. Hmm. If anything, uh, Hong Kong is showing a pattern of following Taiwan. First in Taiwan, there was the sunflower movement in, in the spring of 2014 to oppose the trade agreement with China, which was followed by the umbrella movement in the second half of 2014 in Hong Kong. And now Hong Kong has followed Taiwan um, in selecting, although here we elected, a a female leader. So it's interesting to see how uh, there's a pattern of Hong Kong following on Taiwan. Taiwan leading the way, all right? I think perhaps the bigger question that um, people start to be talking about soon is that just where is China heading on Hong Kong and potentially also its direction on Taiwan relations? And so you've got the 19th National Congress coming up in mm-hmm. autumn or fall later this year and right. there's sort of some talk out there that perhaps there's going to be some new direction or some um, signals given f- through that uh, process around exactly where Beijing sees Hong Kong going and where it sees cross-strait ties going. Right, yeah, it, it, it seems like a lot of people see that 19th Party Congress as something of, uh, of like a singularity or something like we can't see past that at all uh, and a lot of people are waiting to see what that might pretend for all these issues. Well, it is a once-in-five-years event, and, mm-hmm. it is, and it has been historically uh, a forum where 
a rare forum that you do get some insight on China's long-term foreign policy direction. And so I think it is pretty relevant. But it's kind of hard to tell, though, whether this is maybe uh, signaling some kind of clampdown just before the event so that, you know, it ensures stability during the event. Or if it, you know, signals a longer term strategy that will perhaps be codified in the 19th Congress. At this point, it seems like both of those are a possibility. Absolutely. Especially when you're looking at the the recent chain of events in Hong Kong, you had the um, kidnapping of people that were seen as dissidents, the Causeway Bay booksellers, then you had a recent, and then obviously the um, charges laid against the, well, the the move from Beijing to push out pro-democracy legislators from the parliament there. You had a billionaire, Xiao Jianhua, you know, removed from Hong Kong, and he he was a guy that had ties to Xi Jinping. So there's all these things that are adding up now. And so, yeah, the the question is, where is this heading? Uh, Bob, do you have anything you want to add? Just that the the Hong Kong election has not really been in the news here in the UK. I mean, with with the Brexit uh, triggering of Article 50, uh, that's been dominating the news. So I haven't really heard anyone talking about it here. Hmm. You given given the uh, colonial past, you would think that that would be bigger news over there. Yeah, and there's always uh, been a lot of uh, so there's always uh, protests outside of the Chinese uh, embassy out here. Um, whenever there's uh, things going on uh, in, in Hong Kong or in China, so it's actually kind of surprising that uh, there wasn't much reaction going on this time. Now, just to close out this segment, uh, Ross, you spent a fair amount of time in Hong Kong, and uh, this week there has been a little bit of speculation that perhaps if the new administration in Hong Kong is pulling a little bit closer to Beijing, and if Beijing is in a mood to cool ties with Taiwan, those cooling ties may extend somewhat further into Hong Kong as well. So this may pretend uh, some implication. This may have some implications for Taiwan-Hong Kong ties. Uh, maybe start off by explaining first what's important about Hong Kong-Taiwan ties, and then what might this mean? Sure. The, the Hong Kong re- retains extraordinary importance to Taiwan as a place to transact business, especially business with regard to China. So the transshipment of goods, a place for financial, legal, other support services. Uh, Hong Kong is still uh, the prominent regional headquarters for many multinational businesses. There are Taiwan companies that are listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, for example. Uh, So its business importance still exists for Taiwan, despite the relaxation in the rules that for many years prevented direct business transactions between Taiwan and China. Uh, So that will continue. Uh, On the political side, though, we have seen a number of events over the last few years that have caused relations to cool between Hong Kong and Taiwan. And this is unfortunate because uh, relations, as they had been with Taiwan and China, have been improving under the previous government of Ma Ying-jeou. A notable event was the change in name of the representative offices, uh, the unofficial representative offices of of Taiwan in in Hong Kong and Hong Kong here in in Taiwan to names consistent with uh, how these representative offices are named by other governments in Taiwan or how Taiwan names its tech rows in other places around the world. So there was some normalization there. And John Chang, who was uh, the losing candidate in this past Sunday's uh, selection for chief executive, had actually come to Taipei to open the office when it was renamed. So there were significant events. Um, But more recently, uh, Hong Kong government, as Beijing has, has been angered by leaders of the umbrella movement coming to Taipei to make public speeches, Uh, angered by civil society groups in Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, having connections and discussing their methods of going about uh, protest. And DPP legislators have been refused entry into Hong Kong, which has angered uh, the public and, and people here in Hong Kong, uh, sorry, in Taipei. And then there were the military vehicles from Singapore, which were stopped in the port of Hong Kong, which kind of put into a very public way the ongoing military ties between Singapore and Taiwan. But unfortunately for Hong Kong, they were dragged into the situation. Uh, so there are a number of headwinds in the bilateral relationship. And unfortunately, it's unlikely to change politically, although the business relationship uh, will continue with its importance. Mm. All right. So that is the news from Hong Kong and the view of that news from here in Taiwan. Uh, Last up for the first half of the show, uh, this one will just be a quick update on former President Ma and his new retirement hobby of facing legal challenges in court. There's a bunch of these cases related to the alleged leaking of classified information in late 2013. 
That was, of course, related to conversations between the DPP's Ko Jianming and former legislative yuan speaker Wang Jinping. That conversation was, of course, related to an influence peddling probe. Uh, We went through all the ins and outs of that about two weeks ago, so not going to go into it again in too much depth right now. The take-home point for today, though, is there's a bunch of ongoing cases related to all that. And one of those cases has been settled for now in Ma's favor. The Taipei District Court earlier this week found former President Ma Ying-jeou not guilty of libel and leaking of confidential information on a life, uh, lawsuit filed by DPP caucus whip Ko Jianming. So the key word there is insufficient evidence. Uh, Bob, maybe you can help me understand this a little bit more. So when we were talking about this issue a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about a case brought by prosecutors. This case is one that relates to a a complaint from Ke, but it is not a civil suit. This is also a criminal suit? Uh, That's correct, because Taiwan is a civil law country, and um, a lot of civil law countries actually have this process where private citizens can bring criminal lawsuits um, and this is separate from the ones that are brought by the prosecutor. And uh, so here in this case, there's two separate cases. And uh, the fact that uh, this one brought by by Ke has been, uh, uh, Ma has been found not guilty, uh, has uh, no effect on, on the other cases going on. Mm. Now, the reason that was cited for finding him not guilty, though, was that there wasn't uh, enough evidence to support you know the 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 allegation that you know he had in fact illegally uh leaked this information i mean does that ruling is that is that a positive sign for his other cases going forward though well i haven't read the the judgment but as far as i understand um uh the the judge uh had ruled that uh there was a phone call but it's it there's not this insufficient evidence to say that that phone call uh, was where Ma had uh, asked the uh, Huang Suming to, uh, to to leaked information to him to share information with him. So I think um, I don't know uh, whether it's a good positive sign for the other case, but I think it's a positive sign for really um, the criminal justice system in Taiwan because. Um, a lot of people think, you know, it looks obvious, though, if Wang Siming was guilty, then Ma Ying-jeou should be guilty. But uh, in criminal cases, it's, you know, it's the standards beyond a reasonable doubt. And if we don't know what happened in the phone call, um, we can't really just guess and say, well, he probably did um, ask Huang to share the information. So, um, you know, not having read the judgment, I think... Um, it's it's an acceptable judgment based on uh, the media's report of um, just the lack of evidence. Well, the, the important issue here, separate from whatever the judges may have written, is Ma was clearly what we would call a tippy. Someone called him and said, I got some information for you. And I think a lot of scholars, legal scholars, lawyers, and the public, regardless of whether or not one is legally trained – are struggling to see where there's a crime because, simply because one is a tippy and, and received information uh, from somebody who called in, in a clear moment of somewhat emotional exuberance and said, hey, Mr. President, I got something to tell you. Uh, so uh, I think a lot of people just struggle to say, well, you know, Ma was on the receiving end of a phone call. Sure, he should have said or could have said, don't call me with this and, and hung up the phone. But well, he didn't. But and, well, then what he did is he he later went public with that information. Uh, well, but that raises the question: if if the tipper calls the tippy, does the tippy have an obligation to maintain the confidentiality of that information? And, and the answer to that might very well be no. He doesn't have a legal obligation to do that. Ed, do you have anything to add there? I guess just the broader conversation that's going on at the moment in Taiwan is whether or not this is a political witch hunt and whether uh, Ma, who obviously the scandal um, was sort of well aired back in at the time, right, in 2013 and, and through 2014, and then now it's sort of being aired again. And so I, I guess there's a, a feeling that perhaps um, – the politicians on the DPP side could have let this go, and they and they haven't. And then there's also questions around whether or not the court should 
be hearing these cases. And, and for me, that actually brings up a broader point that I think we're going to talk about later in terms of the judicial reform. And that just, what it does is it gives the perception that there isn't a great deal of trust in Taiwan's judiciary or judicial system mm. and the fact that you could actually have these sort of allegations that the courts could be tied in with the politicians and that the, there's perhaps not quite the separation of uh, judicial and, gov- and um, administrative branches of government. And so from an outsider sort of point of view, all of these discussions, you know, if they were happening in, a, in another Western democracy, they would be on the borderline of contempt of court. This would be getting into some of the things that Trump has been saying around the judges uh, in the US on his travel ban, where he's not just criticised a decision, but he's actually criticised the system. And that's what I think you're seeing play out a little bit here. Well, one thing we know, and this does go to the judicial reform issue, is in Taiwan, in the democracy era, it's very easy to get your day in court. So, Keith, if if I insult you on the air right now, you you could probably not just bring a civil suit against me. You could file a criminal lawsuit against me as well, and I might go to jail for insulting you here on the the radio program. And and you would get your day in court to have that – have that in front of a judge. What, 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 what do you mean by that, Ross? I don't, I don't like the way you're looking at me right now. <laughs> Might just go through with it. Might just do it. Uh, well, you'd, you'd have to give me immunity, like, like uh, former National Security Advisor Flynn is seeking immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll insult you. <laughs> I, I got it all on tape, dude. I got it all on tape. Uh, but, but, but that actually raises a, another issue, and, and, and that is, is Ka a victim? Was he a victim of a crime? Uh, and and what, what, what are the damages here? And, and Bob, you're, you're an expert in Taiwan's legal system, so maybe you can enlighten us, because I'm struggling to see how Ke is a victim here. Um, actually, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm not sure what his argument is. Um, it, it, I mean, it does seem like he's pursuing this more, more as a political act than, than any, anything uh, from a legal perspective. Bob, can I just ask, you know, from an international law point of view, would you see a case like this in, you know, in your experience in, in the UK or the US? There's really two two causes of action here. There's the libel and then there is the, um, I believe, the the leaking uh, the, the information. Um, the confidentiality of information. Yeah, the com- right. Um, I think the libel would, uh, at least in the US, it's it's a much higher standard and it's, it's really not um, – not really as commonly used as far as I know, because it really it's kind of like the the Barbara Streisand effect a little bit where you you bring more attention to it um, as opposed to just letting it go. Uh, whereas we don't see that reservation in Taiwan. It's you know all, the politicians and uh, news commentators are always suing each other for for libel and that's a um, I don't know about other Asian countries, but it seems like it's a very Taiwan-specific phenomenon, as, as far as I can tell. Well, again, this goes to the issue of uh, Ma being being the tippy and, and you know, held a press conference saying the prosecutorial agencies have come to me with this information about what I think is something awful that Ke Jiaming and Wan Jinping have done. And the prosecutors have come and told me they're investigating this. And, and now Ke Jiaming and, and, and the public prosecutors are saying, uh, well, Ke Jiaming's a victim and Ma Zhou's committed a crime by – uh, sharing information he received as a tip in, and obviously, at least for now, in in the private prosecution initiated by Kajia Ming, the ju- the courts have rejected that. Two two quick observations I want to make before we head to the break because we are uh, coming up on the end of the first half. Uh, firstly, any show that has a reference to Barbara Streisand is one that I am proud to be a part of. Uh, and second, uh, for it is a radio show, so it, it is too bad that uh, our audience missed out on the little happy dance that uh, Ross made when Bob agreed with him. Well, for that, I will bring you flowers, just like the Barbara Streisand. So. <laughs> Perfect. I'm, I'm, gra- I'm glad you weren't offended by that, because I actually, in that case, I have no video evidence. Uh, so hopefully okay. that wasn't slanderous. I, I was filming, so I can get that up on the, online. Right. Well, just like President Ma, maybe you shouldn't um, reveal that. You have confidentiality <laughs> obligations. All right. It's a it's a sticky wicket. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll work through all the ins and outs of whether or not Ross uh, can sue me right now uh, during the break. When we return, though, in the second half, uh, we are going to be putting our lawyers to work a little bit more, uh, talking about the Council of Grand Justices review of a gay marriage case. Then we'll be looking at an ongoing review of the whole judicial system that may lead to a complete overhaul of how that thing works. Ross and Bob are about to lay down the law for us when we return to Taiwan This Week.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Ross Feingold, Edward White, and Bob Cow. Jumping back in, the Council of Grand Justices, that is the court charged with making constitutional interpretations, is busy at work taking a hard look at the civil code. This case comes from the Taipei City government and gay rights advocates Chi Chao Wei. Uh, they are arguing that same-sex marriage is a right that is in fact protected by the Constitution and that the civil code uh, should accord with that protection. So, Bob, uh, you are more up on all this than me. What do we need to know about this case? All right. So um, the uh, Chi Jiao Wei and the Taipei City government... Uh, foul cases a couple of years back with the Constitutional Court, and it took them a while to actually accept the case and actually schedule a hearing. But we finally got the hearing last week, and uh, the hearing uh, was basically uh, testimonies by government officials, uh, by the plaintiffs, and um, by expert witnesses. And really, the court here is trying to ask uh, four main questions. The first is, is the civil code, um, as is currently written, does it allow for same-sex marriages? Uh, because it actually doesn't uh, mention uh, the genders uh, right now explicitly. Um, the second question is, uh, if it doesn't allow it, uh, does this violate the Constitution, uh, the, the, the right to, to a marriage in the Constitution? The third question is, does it violate the right to equality? in the constitution and fi- finally the court is looking at well let's say if if the legislature establishes a civil partnership uh scheme as opposed to same-sex marriage would that be a viable constitutional co- constitutional alternative so that uh same-sex couples can't get married but they can enter, enter into civil unions and would that be constitutional so um the court is uh should be coming out with a decision within two months, and um, no, we're not we're not so sure um, what what's going to happen. Um, and it's uh, we're still seeing a lot seeing a lot of opposition from uh, government officials, in particular uh, Chiu Tai Sen, the just Justice Minister. Hmm. Yeah, let's get into that in just a second, because that's obviously one of the big headlines that came out of this is how the head of the Ministry of Justice, you know, argued this case. Uh, But first, maybe just just to really clarify this, I mean, you're talking about some pretty wide ranging issues there. What are the potential consequences for this ruling? I mean, could this go so far as to because of the ruling that comes out from this, you know, legalizing same sex marriage in Taiwan? Oh, best case scenario, which I don't think will happen is that the court will just say that the civil code should be interpreted to allow same-sex marriage. Um, currently, the Ministry of Justice actually uh, has an official interpretation of civil code saying that it only applies to uh, heterosexual couples. So uh, the court could really just say, you need to interpret it. We're going to interpret the civil code differently, and therefore same-sex marriage will be will be legal. But more more likely is that if they do find the uh, so code unconstitutional, they're probably going to uh, uh, mandate that the legislative legislative UN amend the civil code and they'll usually give a couple of years uh, for that to happen. So um, ev- even if we get uh, a favorable decision, the constitutional court, it could still be a couple of years away. All right, let's pick up on some of the uh, political threads that are going on here. Of course, uh, as Bob kind of alluded to, uh, the Minister of Justice, Cho Tai-san, made uh, some pretty strong arguments against uh, an interpretation that would allow for gay marriage. He, in the, in the way that he framed his arguments, he really appealed to, you know, uh, Taiwan traditions or the, the, you know, traditional cultural attitudes that uh, typically view marriage as an institution between uh, a man and a woman. And I, I, I think uh, a lot of folks uh, in Taiwan uh, took some exception to the way that he uh, framed his arguments. Uh, and furthermore, it's kind of interesting, you know, of course, uh, uh, Premier Lin Tran was very quick to back back off and say that these views do not represent the can- uh, the cabinet uh, more broadly. But this is a guy that was uh, appointed by, you know, the administration more broadly. And of course, Tsai Ing-wen has come out uh, with with statements broadly in favor of uh, in support of same sex marriage. So 
you know, it, it kind of calls into question the, the overall uh, commitment of the administration to this cause. Uh, Bob, were you, were you surprised at all by uh, the way that uh, Minister Cho uh, approached this? I was not surprised by his position, but I was a bit surprised by kind of the, the how, how, how much um, effort he put into opposing same-sex marriage um, because I mean he, yeah he wasn't just phoning it in right I I, I have a some somewhat different perspective I'd say I was shocked by his word choice and and actually by what seemed more like a lack of preparation because some of the arguments he made reasonable people could oppose marriage equality and make legal or even cultural historical arguments for taking that position but his arguments were just not the strongest arguments for opposing marriage equality and in fact in the court of public opinion it went down very poorly one of the things he said was well older folks have come to me and said they wouldn't know what pronouns to use in in memorials to deceased uh, parents and and so it came across as he's saying well there's there's a person who's confused so we'll prohibit everyone from doing this. It made no sense. And again, that's why it went down so poorly in, in, in public opinion. Mm. How am I going to explain this to my grandparents? Yeah, sorry, Bob, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I, I agree about the part with the, yeah, when he mentioned the ancestral tablets. Um, More happy dance, just so you know. And uh, that that was actually, um, that was actually in response to a question by the plaintiffs. It wasn't uh, part of his prepared remarks. Um, and I think for that, the, the question that was addressed was actually would legalizing same-sex marriage um, affect any social uh, any have any effects on social order and yeah his his answer has nothing to do with the uh, social order it's really just a private decision how you want to honor your parents in your private home on your ancestral tablets has nothing to do with whether you know uh, same-sex couples can get married so yeah he's 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 speaking on a very different level and as a as a minister minister of justice it's it's really it is a bit shocking that he he can't really just dispense with that that uh, concern easily by saying that's not what the marriage equality is all about. But um, what I was referring to earlier about not being surprised is his prepared remarks uh, because it, it largely tracks the the written um, um, a memo that the MOJ had written, and it's really the same kind of arguments that. Uh, he and the MOJ have have, have been using um, uh, not just this ter- this time around, but even the the last time when uh, the previous bill was in the legislative UN. And actually, the arguments this time are much better because I remember last time um, there's mentions of uh, I think bestiality and and just crazy arguments like that. That that that's thankfully that they're not making those arguments anymore. It's probably worth noting as well just the broader political consequences of this whole debate that are playing out in Taiwan beyond uh, for the people affected by the same-sex marriage legislation on either side of the argument. You know, there is actually now, I think, a a fair argument that there's a bit of political risk for Tsai and the DPP. There is obviously evidence that Tsai campaigned on this issue back in, in 2015, ahead of the 2016 elections. She said, um, well, she signaled that the, the new government would support it. Uh, would support the change to same-sex marriage. That view endeared her to people that perhaps may not have had a huge amount of... Um, that may not have supported the DPP anyway. Um, there has then been some, uh, I suppose, views that will give her time, give the DPP time to, to bed in, to get some big, bigger things done. And then now, you know, we're coming up, we're, we're at almost at a year on since um, they took power and the the view is that she has broken a promise, and so that has that has implications. That that becomes something that opposition people, opposition politicians, opposition media um, can point to. And I think as long as this sort of what is now a saga, you know, you've got three or four pieces of legislation in the in the um, the LY in the in Taiwan's parliament. You've also got this these dual cases in the constitutional court. There's no short of shortage of people writing and talking about this issue and it all comes back to the fact that, that Tsai has has potentially broken a promise here. Hmm. Uh Bob, closing thoughts before we move on? Uh I just think this uh this will drag out for, for much longer than anybody expected last year. Uh, there was so much hope that uh, the bills will actually pass the legislative UN um, because the KMT originally uh, wasn't 
uh, too vocal about their opposition. Um, but now it seems like uh, um, my, my personal belief is that the Constitutional Court will, um, you know, will either say, will either rule that uh, same-sex marriage must be legalized or or civil union scheme must be uh, legal. I feel like they're going to do, uh, there's going to be a change because otherwise it doesn't make sense that they would have accepted the case. So there should be some kind of ruling that will, um, but then uh, it's up to the legislative UN to actually implement that. And that's going to drag out for a long time. Um, so so I'm, I'm not optimistic. I'm not sure how long this is going to go on for. Hmm. All right. On that note of non-optimism, we are going to move forward to our final story for the broadcast. And we are, of course, uh, sticking with the legal beat. President Tsai Ing-wen, during her campaign, here's another campaign project uh, promise. She pledged to support a reform of Taiwan's judiciary uh, under her administration. Of course, it's one of Taiwan's least trusted institutions, whether it's fair or not. The perception is widely held that rulings by judges are easily influenced here in Taiwan uh, and tend to side with the rich and the powerful, whether that's fair or not. So beginning in late February, we've seen a string of meetings on some wide-ranging topics related to judicial reform, from creating protections for vulnerable people to increasing oversight over judges and prosecutors. This week, actually, I looked at the possibility of introducing a jury system here in Taiwan. So, you know, trial by jury rather than trial by judge. Uh, The meetings continue, and this is all going to lead up to a national conference in June. Uh, I'm sure the phrase judicial reform does not get the blood pumping for many in our audience. But, uh, Bob, I mean, these are these are issues that if you are somebody who's caught up in Taiwan's legal system, uh, really could be life and death. So. You know, as uh, somebody who has is a uh, you know follows Taiwan law and Taiwan's judicial system, uh, of the topics that they've taken on, what seems really significant to you? Well, first of all, I, I just want to say this does um, make my blood pump. So it's <laughs> I'm ex- it's, it's it's four a.m. and I'm excited about this. Um, we have no doubt. <laughs> we could hear the excitement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's infectious, well, Bob. <laughs> Good, good. Um, so I, it, it's and this is a really large uh, project. I mean, there's five five subcommittees and there are uh, so many different issues. But I think one of the um, uh, well, there's actually two two main ones that uh, have been reported on a lot by uh, in mainstream media, which is um, the, the jury system, like you, you mentioned, and also prison reform uh, is also a big issue. And um, with the jury system, that's actually it's it's been brought up a few times in the past. I think the first time was in the 80s and um, never went anywhere. Um, uh, but with uh, Japan and Korea implementing jury systems in the last decade, uh, and it, they appear to be pretty successful, uh, particularly in Korea uh, and um, the Taiwan, Korea, and Japan all share kind of a similar um, legal system. So there's a lot to learn from those two countries. Uh, the issue with the jury system now is that uh, we have uh, two two really distinct uh, positions. The judicial yuan wants an observer system where the jury members uh, don't get any power, don't get any real power. Uh, they get to discuss with the judges and let them know what they think, but the judges can disregard the, the, these observers' opinions. Uh, whereas we have um, a lot of uh, uh, lawyers and members of the Judicial uh, uh, Reform uh, Foundation who are uh, advocating for a, a American-style 12-member jury system. Um, and uh, it's really, uh, there's really no... Not, no compromises. Uh, we, we can see the judiciary doesn't want to compromise. They're they really uh, really sit on this observer system, and part of the reason um, which um, Huang Guotang wrote about uh, before he became a legislator was that uh, his uh, view is that the judicial yuan is so confident in how uh, efficient and and great the judicial system is in in Taiwan that. Uh, they think a, a, an observer system that allows the people to actually see how uh, ju- uh, how cases are determined will actually make the people uh, have uh, gain more trust in the in the judicial system. So instead of a substantive change, 
the judicial uh, the judicial yuan's uh, perspective is just let let the people see what what we do and then they'll trust us because they'll see how hard the job is so um this is going to go on I, I i think again with similar to same sex marriage um uh this will actually probably drag on for a long time uh, especially because the president of the judicial yuan uh, who was appointed by Tsai Ing-wen is opposed to jury systems. Hmm. Well, one would think that Huang Guochang is very happy with the judicial system as it is, given uh, today's news that, along with other leaders of the Sunflower Movement from 2014, he was found not guilty of uh, crimes related to the, the nature of the protest occupying the legislative UN. This was in the news this morning. Uh, so one would think he's pretty happy with the way the system is. I would assume that legislator Huang, a, a, prof, a professor, prof, he can put his professor hat on and hold two things in his mind at the same time. Remains to be seen. Uh, but my concern with the observer system is that it seems like a half measure uh, when there are good alternatives, right? We, we could gather scholars, experts from other countries' legal systems, and design a good jury system based on practices that have been long established in other places, the size of the jury, selections of the jury, uh, etc. Um, let's not go for half measures, uh, such as an observer system, which actually is going to bring I think, somewhat limited value to the way court cases are decided. I mean, and that, would, that, would that work the same way that, you, you know, you get jury duty in the mail and you, you, you still have to take time off work, but then you get there and all you do is you just watch the thing? Which, again, is, is why uh, it could be viewed as a half measure, that there's not going to be a lot of passion for this as a way to improve the quality of the judicial system, simply uh, inconveniencing the public to attend and watch trials, but then not actually have a substantive say in the result of the trial. So I, I really do view it as a half measure, which I think would uh, be inefficient. Ultimately, people aren't going to be happy with it. Mm. Uh, before we move on, uh, I want to toss things back to Bob. You know, you were kind of referring there to the way that many in the judi- judiciary see the system now. They feel like it's good. It's just misunderstood. And if people got to know it a little bit better, they, they, they would see the value there, too. Uh, I'm interested, for your take, uh, I mean, as, 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 as I mentioned earlier, the, the judiciary is really mistrusted as an institution in Taiwan. It has, uh, it seems to me, uh, a, a lot of people feeling like it's really not serving their interests in the way they would like it to. Uh, do you think that those concerns are valid? I think the problem is that... Uh is how the people are getting their information. Um, I think. Uh, so you agree that it's it's there is an information disconnect, and that might be one of the primary problems. Um, I wouldn't say it's a primary problem, but I would say, uh, I mean, uh, I think the judiciary is, in the grand scheme of things, internationally, the Taiwanese judiciary is 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 uh, you know works pretty well, pretty efficient uh, compared to a lot of other jurisdictions. Um, uh, obviously, there are problems. Uh, there's problems with uh, uh, sometimes uh, cases get do do get dragged out, or sometimes there's um, the uh, you know there's this uh, criminal procedure. Uh, so rights for victims and rights for uh, defendants are not as strong as they could be. So there's there's definitely a lot of things that could be reformed. But I think a uh, large part of it is really um, it is it is true that the people uh, don't really know how the judi- judiciary works and. But there's a lot of different ways to to address that, um, and I agree that the observer system is is a horrible way to to do that. Uh, it's really just a, a, a matter of education, um, civic education, or it's a matter of uh, perhaps making judges write uh, judicial opinions in plain language, because right now uh, judicial opinions are written in such uh, ar- archaic uh, legalese that even well-educated uh, native Chinese speaker uh, would sometimes uh, have difficulty understanding these judgments. So uh, it's really just uh, bridging that gap. And I think the jury system is a way to do it. But really, let's yeah, let's give them some some actual powers. And I, I do think um, the lessons from Japan and Korea could be, could be very useful for us. Now I saw Ross there shaking his head and pursing his lips. He was not doing a happy dance. Uh, so uh, <laughs> some disagreement there. Well, uh, but Bob compared aspects of Taiwan's judicial system favorably um, to other jurisdictions 
globally. And while there, there are certainly jurisdictions nearby here in Asia that are far less mature and far more susceptible to political in- interference, and these are countries that lack democracy and or rule of law, I've had nearly 20 years exposure to both civil, commercial, small cases, cases running into many millions of dollars in the commercial space, as well as criminal cases in, in the top, on legal system. And there is clearly not just a lack of education or room for improvement, education for the public, but it is the stakeholders in the system that require uh, a lot of improvement in their knowledge base. Bob mentioned one item, how they write decisions, but even before that, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement, um, whether it's prosecutors in criminal cases, court staff, court clerks, and the judges, whether it's in civil cases or criminal cases. Um, there, there's so much room for improvement in their knowledge base, which would help deliver a better judicial system, whether it's criminal or civil cases. And I, I view so much of the discussion to date on judicial reform as being part of the overall discussion about transitional justice here in Taiwan. And transitional justice is certainly important um, to help Taiwan move on from some of the horrible things that happened in the past. Uh, but judicial reform uh, as a as a issue really needs more discussion about the process, and that includes the education and quality of the stakeholders. And, and it's not simply uh, part of transitional justice. Uh, Bob, would you agree with all that? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily think we disagree. I think we're just um, really. I'm just. Uh, my view was that you know it's not it's not as bad as as a lot of people think but obviously there's still still a lot of room for improvement um and uh, ross mentioned uh, prosecutors and i think i um people usually tend to uh place the blame on the judges because that's you know, those are the ones the people that actually make decisions but um the prosecut- prosecutorial system actually does need a lot of reform because there's actually a lot of um hierarchy uh, in that system. So, uh, prosecutors are reluctant to, uh, go against uh, what their, um, their, uh, uh, bosses or, or, uh, 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 their, their boss's opinion. So, um, so there's not a lot of independence, uh, for prosecutors. So, um, so, uh, if we want to place the blame on the, uh, we, we need to place the blame on, on the right people and that's to spread it out throughout the judiciary, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, Edward, uh, what what do you see here in terms of significance? I I expect actually there to be some quite major changes coming to the judicial system in Taiwan, perhaps um, not immediately, but over the next couple of years. Tsai Ing-wen, before she was president, she signaled that this was a key area of interest to her, and she actually set out quite clear policy areas that she wanted to look at. So the juries that we've talked about was one. She also mentioned the separation of um, the judiciary and the administrative branch. uh, There was also a a new kind of constitutional review mechanism talked about, as well as the criminal justice system review and a reform of the prison system. So taken as a whole, that's, that's a fair amount to get through. The process at the moment is that it's been sort of opened up to the wider community of interested parties. So it's including a lot of academics, NGO mm-hmm. people, um, even, you know, victims, families and things are, are getting around the table and talking about these issues at, at, at the At these moment. conferences. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people with vested interests. So as, as Bob said, it's, it's going to be a process that takes some time. But at the end of the day, there are some fundamental things for for the executive to really look at here. And that's that's including the separation of of the judiciary and the administrative branch, which goes down to comes down to things like how appointments are made of people within that system. And you're likely going to see some pushback from the judiciary. I think it would be a fair observation that they're quite happy with their position at the moment. And then so people on the outside aren't really happy with their position. So there's going to be some tension there. And likewise, likewise with the constitutional review mechanism that throws up a huge amount of issues around Taiwan's constitution and the political implications of that so yeah I wouldn't want to understate the importance of this this package even though as you I think rightly recognize it's not necessarily one that most people have an interest in but it is one that will affect everyone and um, in the commercial space will certainly affect the way that business is done in terms of potentially dispute resolutions and things like that for the international community. It is very often the least interesting things that are the most important, which is uh, 
you know, why we talk about Ross's happy dance. We need to keep things need to keep things humming uh, to to keep the audience listening. A uh, very I, quick. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just just to um, put one thing in there that probably gets talked about on the show every once in a while, and in, in, in Taiwan, you know, from the international community, is the the issue of the death penalty and capital punishment. And I was talking to some um, NGO people recently, and they were hopeful initially that this would be something that would be. Uh, put into this reform process uh, as as it stands it's unlikely to be included so that's a bit of a blow for people in the NGO community that had mm. hoped for Taiwan to make some progress on this issue mm. Alright, well before we round out this topic, very quickly I, I want to turn it back to uh, our two lawyers uh, for closing thoughts uh, very quickly, Ross you know, we're looking forward to some kind of conference coming up in June, from there it's not really clear where this goes in terms of you know the, the 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 process of actually making these reforms happen, but just looking forward to June, what are you hoping to see come out of these various boring conferences, uh, and 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 what what are the things that will signal to you that this is all on track? Clear deliverables, and unfortunately, uh, and we've seen that in our conversation on the program that it, it's it seems that it, it, the stakeholders are having trouble reaching a consensus on what the deliverables and executing on those deliverables for improving the qual- overall quality of the court system will be, whether it's how judges are selected, whether or not there'll be uh, civil observers but not juries, whether there'll be juries, how constitutional issues will be adjudicated, uh, some of the um, commercial issues that I, that I often see in delays in commercial litigation, dispute resolution. We just don't see it yet. We don't see identification of what the deliverables practical deliverables and how to execute on them will be. Mm. All right. And Bob, closing thoughts. What are you hoping to see come up by the time this gets to uh, the, the, the broader conference in June? I'm hoping uh, to see that uh, there's some kind of leadership um, and uh, from the judicial yuan and the legislative yuan because you're going to need both of them on board to actually make any of this happen. I mean, the committees can come up with wonderful suggestions and recommendations, but if the legislative yuan doesn't uh, introduce and pass the bills or if the judici- judicial yuan isn't supportive, uh, they're going to block it. So uh, and that's, I think, largely comes down to um, you know, Tsai Ing-wen. I, I mean, she appointed. I mean, it's, it's all her people. So it's really, you know, does she have the political will to to see this through? Um, and we see historically uh, uh uh, the, uh, during Li Donghui's presidency, the judicial reform largely failed because the judicial yuan president he appointed was was dragging uh, dragging his feet and didn't really want to go through with it. So, um, so so we're gonna have to see uh, whether Tsai Ing-wen can can really uh, mobilize her people and and get it done. And on that note, we are gonna round out that topic and move to our final story. This being our bonus podcast story. I know Gavin here, so I'm going to have to set this up. Wait, why can't we call Gavin in for a live update from the fumigation? That could have just been a cover. Who knows? Who knows with Gavin? Uh, I, I I think we're going to let his private life be his private life and uh, let, a, let a certain amount of mystery uh, surround all that. Instead, what we're going to be talking about, rather than whatever Gavin might be up to right now, is Mayday. The band Mayday. Mando Pop. Uh, that band celebrated their 20th anniversary this week, and the way that they celebrated that was with a public concert in Da'an Park on Wednesday. Uh, Apparently, tens of thousands of people showed up in Da'an Park to listen to the whole thing. Uh, And, you know, it is is a pretty significant marker. The band has been around since 1997. Uh, Extremely influential band in the Mandopop world. I know that because back in my English teaching days... One of my students uh, informed me, or her, her name pre- previously was Jessica. One day I called on Jessica and I said, Jessica, what do you think about this? And she said, oh, no, 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 I'm not Jessica anymore. I am Mayday. So from that day on, I, I referred to her as Mayday. And if it's, if it's a, a band that you're willing to name yourself after, it must be a pretty good band. And uh, Don Park could attest to that because there was, you know, thousands and thousands of people that showed up to witness their 20th anniversary. 
Uh, you can tell that I'm really not hooked into the Mando Pop scene because I was actually at Da'an Park that day. I was I was working at a, a cafe nearby, and I just wandered outside to get some fresh air. And uh, I saw people kind of milling about, and I heard a band playing, and I was like, huh, that's cool. They, they have a public concert today. That's kind of fun. And then I wandered away. I, I really had no idea what was happening until uh, this came out in the newspaper the next day. So... Mayday. We're getting nostalgic for this twenty-year-old uh, band. Uh, Ross, I can tell you're getting nostalgic for this. Well, well, Keith. Not only are, are you not familiar with Mando Pop, but apparently you're not familiar with the James Bond villainous Mayday from the movie of You to a Kill, played by Grace Jones. That Did I you not. just Google Mayday? <laughs> <laughs> I have seen a View to a Kill many times. Um, Ross furiously Googles all of his answers before he <laughs> says anything on the show. Uh, you're correct, though, that the band has been incredibly influential in, in not just singing in Mandarin, but significantly many of their most popular songs, especially in the first phase of their career, their first few albums, or uh, for you younger folks, CDs, um, were actually rock songs sung in Taiwanese, and, and they were building on the, the early work of Wu Bai back in the early 90s. Um, Great cultural ambassadors for Taiwan in the Mandarin-speaking world, so places like uh, China and Malaysia, Singapore. I've seen May Day in concert in Singapore. Uh, unfortunately, and this goes to a lot of cultural-related ambassadors from Taiwan, never quite caught on globally the way Korean pop stars have caught on and, and have helped make Korean culture a brand well-known around the world. Mm. Yeah, when, when, when is Mayday's Gangnam Style going to break onto the scene? Although we can say that in 2014, they became the first Chinese language band to play at Madison Square Garden in New York. So Did you just Google that? I, I Googled it previously. <laughs> I do my Googling before the show starts. Uh, so, okay, so that's pretty interesting. I think the real question to put to you, Ross, though, is uh, where on your body is your Mayday tattoo? <laughs> I'm not sure Which if I one? can say that. <laughs> Which one? Say that on the air, mm, uh, Keith, Okay, but uh, I, I, again, I, I do have Mayday CDs. Um, uh, as a as a student of Mandarin, um, I've always found listening to popular music a, a good way to study Mandarin and, and um, listen to songs while looking at the lyrics is extraordinarily helpful. And uh, given that um, Mayday is popular. Contemporary music, it's also a good way to improve one's Mandarin skills vis-a-vis -vis how people speak in everyday language, which is often distinguished from the kind of uh, words that we see in our Mandarin language textbooks. Mm. Uh, well, Bob, I, I imagine you must be a little bit disappointed that you missed Wednesday's concert because uh, you're you're a bit of a May Day fan yourself. Well, actually, went went to a Zhonghui May concert here last week, so I'm actually... Not not too disappointed. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, I've seen Mayday in concert before, and I think they're really good live. Um, I think their album's a bit. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how. A bit of vanilla, maybe. I don't know. It's um, there. Yeah, but they have a lot of energy live, and I would. Uh, I don't listen to them anymore. Um, I used to follow them in the late '90s and early 2000s. Well, I think with with a lot Mayday, like a lot of uh, prominent Mandarin. Um, Taiwanese pop stars start out being fresh and something new, but uh, after so many years and so many albums, it, den it does tend to become formulaic, which again, I think actually prevents them from becoming um, the sort of global brand that we, we often see with uh, Korean pop stars. Mm. So, so, so how, how strong would you say your affection for Mayday is? Is uh, your first child, is your firstborn going to be named Mayday? My firstborn probably be Wubai. I think that would yeah. I think I think I would I would choose I would probably choose Wubai over over Mayday um, any day of the week. I, I I thought Bob you were gonna name your first child after a prominent legal scholar. <laughs> uh, so Ross Cow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, I might have to send you the Barbara Streisand flowers. <laughs> uh, Ed, uh, you, you, you and I are kind of sitting on the sidelines here, not being super Mayday aficionados, as our other two guests are. Have uh, What you've heard so far, have they sold you on Mayday? It sounds interesting. I'm, um, I had not heard a song previously by them, and I'm, I'm interested now. I'm noticing that there's actually a guitar in the corner of the studio here. So any chance of a cover from one of you guys? Uh, not from I, I'm afraid. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see Ross's guitar skills uh, after we wrap up here. 
Uh, well, just to educate Edward and myself, uh, maybe Bob, uh, we can go out on a Mayday song to end the show today. What, what should I play for our listeners and for us? Hmm. Ross will probably have a better recommendation. I, don't, I can't remember. I... He's furiously tapping into <laughs> Wikipedia. I am not. <laughs> I, I am not. Uh, Russ, uh, you've established yourself as the preeminent Mayday aficionado of this group. What, what should we play? Actually, I think, as Bob indicated, you know, anything from their first few albums. Um, it really was great music. It was, it was energetic. It was exciting. And you have Mandarin as well as Taiwanese choices. All right. So I'm going to Google this later and edit it all together. <laughs> but this is some song from early days Mayday to take us out to the end of the show. All right, and we will have to leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi. Joined by Edward White. Thank you, Edward. Thank you. Good evening. Also by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And by Bob Cow. Bob, good to have you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.